We are live. Folks, in a world where oftentimes reality can be darker than fiction, there are some stories that we come across that leave us breathless, questioning the very essence of human nature, and today we embark on a journey that takes us into the depths of one such enigma. We're going to be talking about Taylor Should Business. Let's get started. Whatever you might be going through and wherever you might be, this is Omar Serrato with the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. I'm here to take your mind off of things. Yes, I'm an attorney. No, I'm not giving you legal advice. We're going to sit and talk like people as these are the candid thoughts of one practicing attorney and it's after hours. So have a seat. Feel free to have a drink and join me. Let's get started. Good morning, folks. It is Saturday morning. I haven't recorded an episode on a Saturday morning before, um, but my schedule did not allow me to record during the work week. I had a couple trials this week, and um, I got a couple trials next week, too. I've been a very, very busy man, but in the context of all of this, we came across the Taylor Shabusiness trial. She has been an individual who has been on my periphery for some time. I first came across her on a YouTube clip that was circulating whereby in front of the judge in the courtroom during a pretrial hearing, she attacked her former attorney um, and just physically assaulted him um, for seemingly no reason. And she she had some kind of a grievance with that guy and uh, she was restrained uh, by a couple of bailiffs. And that's how she kind of came on to the national consciousness. But then you started to look further into her case and what's actually been going on there, it, it is a bizarre tale of intrigue that um, we just couldn't ignore. And um, truth be told, um, you know, we, we've done a lot of heavy-handed cases in the last few weeks. Um, we did the trial of Rex Humerman, not the trial, the, uh, the murder trials, the Gilgo Beach murders of Rex Humerman. Uh, prior to that, we did the Chad Doerman case uh, where that guy uh, in cold blood decided that uh, he was going to murder his three sons, um, one of them literally ripping them out of the arms of their mother who was trying to save their lives. It's been um, a lot of weighty episodes, and uh, this one is really no short of that. And, you know, as attorneys, uh, we get to the point sometimes when we're dealing with these case these cases, and uh, really, I, I listen to a lot of these true crime podcasts that I come across, and um, I do listen to some, but if you listen to them long enough, it's like, what are we doing talking about this stuff? And I, I addressed this during the Chad Dorman case when I was, you know, what are we doing here? We're... Um, doing a show on uh, why this dad decided to murder his three children. And here we have a case in Taylor Shabusiness who, in a drug-induced 
fit of rage um, in the midst of having sex with her partner, uh, decided to strangle him to death, dismember his body, decapitate him. Um, was she remorseful about it? It didn't seem like she was. It was uh, She was in this bizarre malaise as she spoke to the police. And by the way, before we get too far deep into that, this is a family show. If you have small children listening to the show, I apologize. I should have um, done this warning a little earlier on, but we're going to be talking about some very sensitive subject matter, and I'm not going to get into all of the explicit grisly details. There's plenty of uh, information out there if you wanted to Google search that on your own. just um, It's disturbing if you're really interested in those grisly details. I'm really more interested in the human aspect of all of this. Um, in the midst of trying to decide what this show was going to become, you know, I spoke oftentimes that in the very beginning, this was going to be a show that gave legal advice and, you know, or at least try to point people in the right direction, direction on how to navigate some of their cases. It evolved into, um, you know, something else. Um, it evolved into us covering these cases. Um, let's, uh, let's start talking about, uh, Miss Taylor business. Who was she? Um, we know about some of the salacious details because she was the subject of a national, uh, trial where the nation, you know, they, they televised, um, her trial on, on law and crime on various other platforms. Um, we know about some of the more, um, explicit details, but when they, uh, they, they, in the course of after she was convicted, they brought her father in, who's sitting currently incarcerated in federal prison. We'll talk about that a little bit. But he started to describe some of her childhood, um, what she endured and, you know, some of his regrets as a father, some of the challenges that Taylor had to endure as a youth, um, the difficulties in, I guess, an abusive relationship where she was, uh, with a guy that turned her onto methamphetamine and, you know, led her down this uh, vicious spiral where if you look at her now, she, she, uh, she, uh, resembles a zombie. She is very much seemingly soulless. Is that because of, uh, her voracious appetite for narcotics that has left her void of a soul? from her abuse of methamphetamines and various other things? Is it because uh, she is possessed by a demon? Um, as if this were a horror movie and her soul is being kept under wraps? Is it because she's seen so much tragedy in life that she no longer has an ability to display emotion or empathize with the uh, human endeavor? Is it because she has a mental illness? Well, we're going to talk about all of those things. Taylor Shabusiness was born um, November 23rd, 1997. Her mother died um, about 14 years ago when Taylor was just 12 years old of alcoholism. And after the death of her mother, she was sent to live with her grandparents in Texas. And just going into some of that, um, she was a resident of Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
Did she have a criminal record prior to that? Previously, she did face some legal trouble, but it was nothing too out of the ordinary. She, there was charges against her for fleeing or eluding or obstructing justice, obstructing officers. Um, at the time, um, on, well, on January 4th of 22, she was sentenced to three months in prison uh, with work release privileges. So she committed some crime. She got 90 days, um, and they put her on work release. And if you're unfamiliar, that is a sentence that the district attorney usually gives to individuals who maybe it's their first offense, maybe it's a low-level crime. Um, so they sentenced them to, say, 90 days in county jail, but we're going to let you serve that through community service or some kind of a work release program where you're literally reporting to the jail. They're not putting you in a prison cell per se, but you're going to work for the county. And it's a way to, to resume your life and not lose your job and still be a mother or father or a wife, a husband, uh, whatever it is, your responsibilities. And um, you'll pay your penalty to society and hopefully learn some valuable lessons and go on about your merry way. That was the hope for Taylor business. Around that time, she was involved with a, a young man named Shad Tyrion. And um, if you were wondering, I mean, there's pictures of him circulating all around. He just, he's a young, he's a kid. I mean, both of these individuals, really. Um, they're both around 25 years old. She's born in 97. That puts her about 26. Um, but this young man was a... Gosh, if you could remember 25, um, I think 25 was my favorite age of all the years that I've been alive. I'm 42 now, but 25, I felt like I was in my physical peak. There was nothing that I couldn't do physically. Um, I could run forever. I could lift forever. Um, you know, you're still on the cusp of your youthful Appearance going into adulthood, it's a uh, you know somewhere between 25 and 32 we peak. My my favorite age in life, um, at least physically, maybe not so much mentally, uh, but was 25 years old. And these pair uh, were engaged in their romantic relationship. How they chose to define it is really anybody's guess. I don't know what they were. Um, I don't know if they were headed towards marriage. I don't know if they were just friends that liked to do drugs together and. Uh, do other things together in the midst of their company. Uh, but on February 23rd of 2022, Shabiznis was arrested in relation to the death of Tyrion. And, um, well, uh, police opened a probe into Tyrion's death after his mother, Tara Pakinich, found his severed head in a bucket in the basement of her home. That led the cops to Shabiznis's house, where the cops reported she had dried blood on her clothes when they had arrived. Um, if you look at some of the video footage of her arrest, you could see that there was like blood on her hands. Um, investigators also discovered some of Tyrion's body parts that were located in Shabiznis's vehicle. She had a clear plan of what she wanted to do. She didn't, it's arguable whether or not you want to say that she formulated this plan to murder and dismember her friend. 
prior to it happening or if it occurred during the act of um, them having sex, which is what she said to the cops. Her stories, her, her, the story that she gave is somewhat vague and ambiguous. Um, one officer, Alex Wanish, and by the way, if you, li- if you work in law enforcement, if you work in law, uh, as I do, um, lawyers are on the front lines of these cases in a much different way than law enforcement. If I were to liken this to the military, law enforcement is like the Marines. Or, you know, they're the first ones on the scene. Um, or the Army, they're the first ones on the scene and they do all of the dirty work, and then they usually bring in units to do some of the cleanup and pick up. But there's always that first wave, and law enforcement gets to be the first wave. And so all of these grisly details, they experience things that lawyers never will. Imagine in the course of your job, uh, you happen to come across a um, severed head in a bucket. Sure enough, there it is. Um, There is video Uh, of the police discovering those grizzly remains um, floating around on YouTube, and you can look those up if if you like, but it's on a lawn crime. They did extensive um, coverage of this case in terms of video evidence, and you can see their reactions. Yep, that's a head. Damnedest thing. But imagine just walking into that, and you're having to carry that stench of uh, grizzliness with you as you come home and try to... uh, somehow uh, resume a nor- normal life. Um, but as Officer Alex Wainish uh, reported, he says he goes downstairs. I went downstairs at the bottom of the stairs to the right. There was a green bucket with a shower towel on top of it. And just to verify, we had an actual head in the bucket. Lifted the towel off, and there was, in fact, a humid head severed in the bucket. So Shabiznis is, um, she's arrested, um, she's interrogated, and she confessed to spending the previous day with Tyrion and smoking meth with him. Um, a criminal complaint explained that Shabiznis responded that the police were going to have fun trying to find all the organs as she dismembered the body. Um, it gets really, really, really dark uh, going into some of this stuff. Um, pardon me let me just make sure I didn't lose anything okay we're good Um, as they are interrogating Shabiznis she stated that all of the body parts uh, should be in the basement further she stated that there should be a foot or a leg in the minivan uh, the detective Graf asked Shabiznis that she what she did with the head, and Shabiznis stated she had put Tyrion's head in a black bucket and put a blanket over it. The complaint further observed Shabiznis stated that she and the victim were smoking. She referred to it as the bitch, um, and uh, Detective Graf is like, "What? What? When the hell is that?" And he was able to clarify with Shabiznis that he believed she was referring to meth. Um, I'm not familiar with that term, but that's literally what she said. And there is, again, there's interrogation video out there of of exactly what happened. Um, Shabiznis stated that the victim had a chain uh, that he had put around his neck. Shabiznis stated 
uh, that the victim, um, they were getting into sexual intercourse. That strangulation was part of a sex act that they were wanting to perform. Uh, she stated that she and uh, the victim had used strangulation during sex in the past, and this was just another instance of that. And then at some point, she decided that she liked the reaction of him um, in pain, and just rather than stopping, she just kept going. And then she described the way that he looked, his mannerisms, his facial expressions, and how she was getting excited and or aroused. And um, she just kept on going until she choked the life right out of him. <sighs> on July 26, 2023, a Brown County jury found her guilty on all charges within about a half hour of return to verdict. There really was not much of a defense put up. I mean, they're, they're trying to, uh, they tried to use an, insan an insanity defense because, I mean, she confessed to the crimes. And, um, you know, um, I've, I've spoken with psychologists who have investigated these individuals that claim insanity as a defense. And there are genuine cases of insanity. I myself have gone to interview um, individuals while they were incarcerated who were suspected of not being competent to stand trial. And it's always, um, sometimes it's obvious that they're faking it. Sometimes it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to say it's obvious, but it sure does appear that they are um, not competent to stand trial to me let alone have a, a, a forward conversation with me to advance theories on their defense or have them participate in the process of going about the business of trying to preserve their freedom. Um, and other cases are more ambiguous. It's funny because we have these ideas of what we believe is normal in the context of human communication, human conversation, um, we always think that we have a handle on uh, what to expect when we interact with people, but there's always these outliers. And um, is it normal? Is it not normal? Is it, uh, you know, is there something wrong with this person? Is there a mental illness? We like to think that we know what we would do in certain situations or how would we, we would react one of the things, I started talking about this at the very beginning of the show. I watched some of these true crime podcasts from individuals that are not on the front lines, the same as law enforcement, the same as attorneys. And um, they simply just feed on the stories. They feed on the salaciousness of the details. And you hear them make statements such like a, I don't know, the fact that she did this or that is absolutely mind-blowing. Or I, I could understand that she did this, this, and that, but I would have done X, Y, and Z. It's like, would you have really? I mean, uh, <laughs> Jesus. It's like uh, you watch a MMA fights or you watch a boxing fights or these big fights with people that have never stepped in the ring or stepped on the wrestling mat or stepped on a been confronted or actually been in a real fight or been punched in the face before or um, been choked 
to the point where they're about to lose consciousness and they have to stay conscious for just another 10 seconds to make it into round two. And they say, oh, he should have just done this, this, or that. Or, um, oh, why didn't he block? <laughs> um, probably because he just got popped in the temple and he's got, he doesn't have his legs under him and he's a little weary of if he goes for this block that he's going to get attacked on this other end or he's going to get a key a kick to the thigh or he's going to get a, you know, liver shot or something. There's all kinds of things going on that we don't understand. And here uh, with uh, a business, if you've ever sat, sat and talked to an individual that is convicted or not, not convicted, a, accused of a crime, I often go back to this one story. When I was a young attorney, uh, one of my jobs was to do all of the things uh, that the, the head attorney at my firm did not want to do, which is most of the things uh, but one of the things that I did was I, I had to go to do these jail visits. And so I walked in and I'm, I would do these jail visits at various prisons amongst uh, the state of California, up and down. And I've been all the way from San Diego, literally to um, Northern California to do these jail visits. And one of them sticks out particularly that's, that, that rings of... Uh, the same tenor as this Taylor should business case whereby uh, there was, and I've told this story before on the podcast, but it was this young man about the victim in this case, uh, Tyrion's age, 25 years old. He was lured to this house in Paris, California. If you're unfamiliar, it is like this desert area in Southern California that is uh, mostly desert, but it's next to a lake. Um, it doesn't have a huge population, but is one of the more rural, if that's the correct word. Um, not rural in the, in, the, in the sense that it's in the middle of nowhere, but it's just, uh, you know, it's a little more uh, deserty than you would imagine, say, L.A. County to be. But he was lured to this house by proposition of a threesome. He was going to have a threesome with this 19-year-old girl that was staying with this lady that was in her mid-30s. Um, I don't recall if he had a relationship with the lady in her mid-30s or the 19-year-old, but I know that the 19-year-old happened to be a runaway, and I say runaway loosely because she was technically an adult, but she had been on the streets for a number of years. She was taken in by this family who just happened to engage um, in satanic rituals. But they gave her food and shelter, and she was impressionable. Um, I never got the opportunity to uh, talk to that young lady, but she was lured in by this group. Um, so they lure in this young man. He's 25 years old, and um, they promise him all, you know, the world. And uh, when he gets there... He is brutally attacked, brutally and savagely attacked and murdered by two men that were associated with these women who were lying in wait. As soon as he walked into the door, they took two uh, metal aluminum baseball bats and proceeded to obliterate his skull. Um, the crime scene photos were uh, horrific. They were, um, there was blood on the ceilings, there was blood in the kitchen, of course, and, you know, seeping into the carpets, on the couch, all over the walls. It was a, a massacre. Um, 
they didn't try to dismember the body per se by way of a kitchen knife, the way that Shabiznis did in this case. Uh, rather, they tried to um, incinerate the body outside a, a, a barbecue pit that they had. Um, they, they tried to burn the body, and it didn't really work out because that's not really how cremation works. Um, the way that the body was discovered is, of course, they burned off all the flesh, but, you know, there was a... The bones and fragments of body remained biological material. They were able to very quickly um, identify identify the, the victim and of the way that they found the uh, perpetrators in this case. They rounded up the women pretty quickly. The gentleman, um, one of the two, and the one that I had interviewed in prison, went to... Um, well, he stole the guy's car, the victim's car, and then he tried to sell it. And that's how they were able to uh, locate this guy pretty quickly, a couple days after, and he was in jail. Um, I went to talk to the guy, and, um, and before I got there, I was just going through all of the evidence, because I have to know what the evidence was, what they had against this guy. He'd already been charged. So we're beyond the arrest phase, which is when I mostly uh, talk to prospective um, defense clients. In this case, he'd been in charge and he'd been in jail for about a couple of weeks. And so we'd had opportunity to get at least most of the evidence that the DA had already. And a lot of it was these uh, photographs and, you know, some of the crime scene photos. But I went through some of this guy's, by this guy, I mean the victim, um, his cell phone photos. So they went through the entire cell phone and you could kind of see the uh, history of his relationship with this woman and how he got lured in. Um, he's, he was talking to like a seven or eight different women. Um, he was on all these dating profiles and he was sending pictures of himself and receiving pictures back from these people. And so he was very much of that mindset. It was heartbreaking because you go through these photos and you see he's also a dad. There's lots of pictures of his daughter who's probably like, I want to say that she was maybe three or four years old at the time. Um, you know, family photos, just a young kid. And he gets lured in by this uh, foolishness. And uh, he got caught up in a trap. Um, I wonder how much he was keyed into the fact that this uh, lady that he was speaking to was engaged um, in satanic rituals. If you ask me what form of religion she practiced, it's easy to say Satanism. But in my experience and all of my studies, that's not so much a religion as it is a uh, theological philosophy that runs the gamut of uh, many different ideologies, which I guess, if we're being fair, you could kind of say the same of Christianity, um, a theological philosophy that has many offshoots and um, interpretations and such. However you want to phrase that, I'm not even going to begin to get into that discussion. Um it doesn't seem that she was forthcoming. Do I know whether or not that she intended to um, have that guy murdered? I'm not so sure if it was her idea any more than it was the other two guys. And I know I'm getting off topic because we're supposed to be talking about business. But that case that I had um, reminded me of that case in that when I went to go talk to uh, one of the gentlemen that murdered the victim in that case, um, the interview that I conducted with him was similar to Shibusiness, 
not for the context of him confessing to his crimes, but just it was similar that he was just devoid of the material of the human soul is the best way that I could put it. There's a there's there's lots of uh, video footage and and pictures circulating of Taylor's business out there floating around. It's always striking to me to um, recount when she's in prison, when they're going over the, some of the more grisly details of the crime. She makes these facial expressions like she has this constant permanent smirk sketched onto her face. One would describe it as very um, villainish, very Disney villain um, smirk that she has. Not so much Cheshire Cat as much as it is Ursula from The Little Mermaid or um, Maleficent from uh, Sleeping Beauty before they turned her into Angelina Jolie and made her a sympathetic figure. Um, But so I talked to this guy in prison and the look in his eyes um, as I'm going over the evidence, it wasn't one of excitement. It wasn't a look of a concern. It wasn't even a look of fear because, oh, they have all this evidence against me. It was just this blank, empty void. If I told you that his eyes were black, I would be lying to you because I don't remember his eyes being black. I don't remember what his eyes specifically look like. I just remember that when I looked him in the eye, the feeling that I got was one of emptiness, a void, a hollow bag of flesh where his soul might have been, but no longer is. If you listen to Shabiznis speak, it's very, very much uh, the same thing. There's a little girl in there somewhere, but somewhere in the deep recesses of her mind, um, there was this girl that had hope, that uh, needed a love, that craved attention, that craved affection. Um, her mother, there's not a lot known about the details of it. All I know about her in her family background is that her mother is deceased since she was 12. Her father is sitting in a federal prison somewhere. Um, how much of what she needed she actually got, it almost doesn't even really matter anymore, does it? It's hard with these cases. You know, I wanted to do this show yesterday, but, you know, the truth is, the truth is with cases like this especially, um, it's so difficult sometimes um, to, to do these cases. There, there's always so much, there, there's, there's, there's always so much that I have to endure because I'm on the front lines. Like just yesterday, just yesterday, I, um, pardon me, let me just make sure that we're up and running before I get too far into this. I think that we're okay. I just, uh, I lost where we were at. Um, oh, perfect. Isn't that nice? Pardon me, folks. All right, I'll just do this one. Just yesterday morning, um, I had a case, you know, and it was not a murder case or anything like that. It was a family law case. It was, uh, I, I was dealing with a client that, you know, the case itself was very routine. 
But the um, subject matter um, lends itself to um, this lady was just distraught. It was a case that was involving her children. And it was, you know, I don't want to go into the details of the case, but just know that it was a case where she felt that she was fighting for her child. She felt, because the judge is making certain orders, awarding um, father visitation time, that she was losing her child. And um, I spoke to her the night before on the phone, and she was in tears. I spoke to her the morning of. She was in tears. She came with her, her sister, with her mother, and before I walk into the courtroom, you know, they all kind of cornered me before I walked in uh, to the courtroom, and they just wanted me to know how they felt. They didn't know anything about the law. They didn't know anything about how I should proceed with the case. They didn't know about, you know, case strategies or anything like that. And it was almost beside the point. They just, they wanted me to know that they wanted me to tell the judge how the child felt. And I tried my best in the most empathetic way that I could uh, to explain to them that the law requires that we have that discussion. I promise you I'm going to focus on these things. But to them, they don't know any of that. And um, I have to worry about that as one factor amongst many that the courts are going to consider. And we're hashing this out in open court. And nobody, they don't understand why I'm saying things that I'm saying, why the judge is saying the things that he's saying. It's always very traumatic. And it goes back to my philosophy of practicing law. It's that um, there is no set defined justice that we all seek. And why do we, why are we so infatuated with these true crime cases? Because, you know, we look at some of these cases and it's so easy. And how you doing, Jeff Sturm uh, from the East Coast? Um, it's, it's, it's so easy to look at some of these cases and say that, yes, that is good and that is evil. But what, when, what if the lines are blurred? If you look into the prism of justice and you see it from all angles, every single time that I've ever walked into a courtroom, there's always somebody opposed. I'm always opposed by somebody, the opposing party, the opposing attorney, whatever it is, whoever it is that is for the other side that I'm representing. Um, when I walk into the courtroom, I never walk in there with the intention to not seek justice. I try to go in there to do the right thing. But everybody has their own version of what right and wrong is. And they use that as the basis uh, to decide whether or not they believe that I'm the good guy or a bad guy. And, you know, they make certain decisions and it is what it is. In this case, Taylor Shabusiness had a defense attorney. And the details of the case that he's presented is here's this lady that had this drug-induced sexual escapade with this young man. And in the process of all of that, she decided that she was having such a good time of choking this guy with the chain that she had or whatever it is that she used that she decided to just continue. And she continued to the point where she strangled him until he was dead. And she wasn't done there. Um, and mind you, this is not alleged. This is stuff that she had already admitted to the police. <sighs> Never mind all of that. She takes a kitchen knife, not a chainsaw, not a hacksaw, not anything like that. She takes a, um, a kitchen knife and proceeds to dismember the body. She continues to sexually assault the corpse long after the body's been dead. Um, and as she says, play with the body. 
after it's been decapitated. She cuddled with it for a period of time. This is your client. This is your client. How do you proceed as a defense attorney? How do you, how, how do you walk into a courtroom and represent such an individual who is so obviously in the wrong, according to the general observers that are looking on on this case? It's difficult. You know, there's prosecutors, there's defense attorneys, and um, she had one defense attorney. That guy was doing his absolute best trying to represent the best interest of Taylor's business. He's probably really put off by the fact that this, of, 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 the, of the crimes that she already admitted to doing. Um, Taylor's business, I'd imagine, was probably not the easiest client to deal with. And in the, in the middle of a court hearing, she attacks her criminal defense lawyer um, until she's apprehended by a couple of uh, bailiffs um, and they escorted her away. And obviously she got a different attorney after that. Um, but the one that she had at trial, the, the, the facial expressions that I got when he was representing her was one of, she did this terrible thing, but I have to represent her because she's not of sound mind. I don't believe that she's of sound mind. He's trying to make these arguments, which is really the only thing that he could have really argued. She's not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, that that is over. So now they're at the sentencing phase. They're trying. They're still trying to talk about whether or not they're going to um, how they're going to sentence her. Let, let's talk about the the legal proceedings before I get too far off track. And I apologize, everybody. I know that I've I've kind of uh, delved off the uh, the carved out path uh, for this case so far, but it's just been a hell of a week. There's so many parallels I have to this in some of my actual cases. It just ties right in. Um. But as far as the legal proceedings um, in 2022 after the arrest, so she admitted to spending time with Shad. Uh, they were smoking meth. She dismembers his body, confessed to the crime. She claims that she blacked out uh, during the act, um, admitted to smoking meth. As far as the, the details of that, um, we were going into some of those before I had gotten sidetracked. Uh, let me let me, uh, let me make sure I, I'm... I'm on the right track over here. I don't want to skip over anything. Um, at any rate, they, they, they charge her with first degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse, third degree sexual assault, um, and Tyrion's death. She was facing, she is facing life in prison. I'm a convicted. She's going to get life in prison. There's not really anything that's going to save her from that sentence. Um, you know, they talked about her minor uh, criminal record that she had had before. So, when they picked her up, uh, the victim's mother tells police how they find uh, Shad's head. Um, she said uh, that she and uh, her friend, they, they got some drugs, uh, went to Eastman Avenue apartment, uh, according to the criminal complaint. All three of them were smoking marijuana. And then uh, they didn't stop with that. They proceeded to smoke methamphetamine. Um, her roommate leaves uh, Shabiznis injects Tyrion and herself with trazodone, which is an antidepressant. And at some point, uh, Shabiznis and Tyrion returned to his mother's home and went to the basement. Uh, the two of them were um, for all or much of February 22nd um, at Tyrion's mom's house. But she was out of the house, of course, on the day of February 22nd. 
Um, about five minutes after they went into the basement together, Tyrion got out two metal silver chains. One that he had had around his neck and one that he gave to her. Shabusiness tells police that she described the chains as a dog's choke collar. Um, she said, again, that this was kind of part of their routine. They had done this before. Um, so he lays face down on the bed. And Shabusiness said that she just kind of went crazy, began to choke him with the chain. And she said that she did not stop, even though he was coughing up blood and his face had turned purple. Um, how sane was she at the time that all of this is going on? Um, well, she was on marijuana. She was on meth. She was on antidepressants. Uh, she was probably high as a kite. Um, but the guy's coughing up blood. She knew that what he was doing, he was face down. It's hard to imagine why he couldn't flip over. He must have been in such a position uh, where he just didn't have the ability to fight back, or maybe he did, I don't know. Maybe she's just a really strong woman and he wasn't, you know, their their um, prospective uh, strength levels were not to a point where he could overpower her. I don't know. But he's lying face down. He's choking up blood, um, coughing up blood, rather. His face is turning purple. And then she tells Green Bay Police Detective David Graff that, uh, yeah, I liked it, um, which he believed meant the strangulation. Um, she business said that she continued to choke him until he stopped breathing. And then what happens next? Well, she business tell, told police that she first played with the victim's body for like two or three hours, her words, like two or three hours. And that's where we're getting the, the sexual assault charge. It's essentially sexual assault of a corpse. Then uh, she used knives from the kitchen to decapitate and dismember Tyrion. Um, I saw pictures of those knives. I'm not going to show them here on the show. Um, but they were basically steak knives. Um, her plan was to take all of the body parts with her, uh, but she says she got lazy and she just didn't. Uh, some body parts were discovered in the van and some were in the basement, placed in plastic shopping bags, a cardboard box, a plastic bucket, and a plastic storage container. This is according, uh, according to uh, the criminal complaints. Um, so how was the body discovered? Well, Tyrion's mom uh, said that she woke up by a storm door slamming between 2.30 and 3 a.m. on February 23rd. She says that she heard a vehicle. She got up. Uh, she saw a light in the basement. She went down there where she discovered a bucket with her son's head in it. Um, what her uh, reaction to that was is anybody's guess, but just imagine the worst. Where was Taylor at this point? Well, um, at some point she had left the house. Uh, the criminal complaint was not really specific as to when that happened. Uh, she business was picked up that morning. Uh, there's not really a time listed, but, you know, it's not all that important. Uh, but she was arrested at her home um, on Eastman Avenue on the east side. It was an apartment building. 
Um, when she was arrested, it was dark. So it was either the early, early morning hours or sometime in the evening. Um, but they handcuffed her. There, there was really nothing of consequence that she said. Um, there's not really much facial expression from her. Uh, it was just an arrest. She had blood on her clothes. She had dried up blood on her hands. Um, she was probably coming down from whatever high that she was on. Um, and well, uh, that was it. Um, a police detective said in the criminal complaint, uh, that she business now lives with a roommate and, uh, her home address was listed as Moraine Way, uh, in a neighborhood of condominiums on the city's west side. Uh, so did she business explain why Tyrion was killed? Um, no. Or sort of. Maybe. Um, interestingly, she says that she didn't, you know, that he was her friend. She didn't really want him to die, but she enjoyed it. Um, she was asked by Detective Graf, uh, what happened? Why did she kill him? And she says, ah, that's a good question, sir. Um, because she claimed to have, uh, blacked out, um, in the process of, uh, choking Tyrion. And by the way, I, I... It's, it's oftentimes when you, you hear people's defenses to these kinds of crimes. I don't know what happened. I must have blacked out. That's not really a real thing. You don't just black out. One does not just black out like you're drunk. And you're just, by that, by means of that, you just forget everything that happened. That's not really a real scientifically documented thing. It is in very rare cases, but that usually involves extreme psychosis. And I'm not a psychologist, but in my, the discussions that I've had with a, a criminal psychologist, that's generally the consensus, that blacking out 99% of the time is not what happened. They fu are full aware of what they did and why they did it, or what they were doing, when they were doing it. So she claims that she blacked out. Um, she said that she had regained consciousness uh, before he was dead. Um and before dismembering him. Interesting. So she's not really saying she blacked out because she's trying to, uh, I guess, offer some defense. She admits, yeah, I regained consciousness. I realized he wasn't dead yet. I'm still choking him. Um, and again, she was conscious before she decided to dismember him, uh, which demonstrates for, and demonstrated for a jury, um, motive, uh, clear intent, I guess, clear plan. And we could talk about a little about that. Some people ask, well, if it wasn't planned, if this is just something that happened uh, heat of the moment, why isn't this just second degree murder? Isn't second degree murder supposed to be essentially that? You just, you know, didn't plan it, but it just happened because, you know, whatever. Um, not exactly. There's not a clear cut defined timeline for what this, for, for how to define what heat of the moment means. Like, for example, there is obvious planned kills. Like, if you've been planning for months and then you carry out an executed plan to murder somebody, of course, that's first-degree murder. But how long is it required for you to plan to murder somebody before it, it, it becomes not heat of the moment, but, okay, this is what I want to do, this is what I'm going to do, and now I've done it. Um, heat of the moment sometimes could be like you lose sanity. Um, the one that they most typically refer to in heat of the moment um, cases in law school, for example, is the case of you walk in on your spouse um, in the midst of a romantic tryst with some other guy or girl. 
Well, in that moment, it's a, the Shawshank Redemption. You go and you get a gun and then you execute them both. That, in some cases, has successfully been argued to have been a second-degree murder type of, ca- type of case because it was the heat of the moment. Or, um, you know, something just happens where in the moment you're so um, irrationally angry that you do something that you would not have done in your right mind that it becomes a heat-of-the-moment crime. But in a case where you claim to have blacked out and then regain consciousness— And then you continue doing and carrying on as you were before. You've had the time to reflect upon what it is that you're doing. And you had the ability to stop it. And you did not. Which lends itself to this idea that it was a plan that you carried out. Um, You didn't have to do it. Uh, You were not driven by adrenaline. You were not driven by heightened emotion. Um, you had an ability to collect yourself. That's not first. That's not second degree murder. That is a murder in the first, sir, or madam. And so um, that's how we dif- differentiate it. That's why this case was first and not second degree murder. So going on, um, she admitted that she and Tyrion again they were smoking a substance that she referred to as uh, she used an obscene slang term for methamphetamine. Um, She also made some comments um, that, according to the complaint, that she had indicated that she had not planned, she had not planned to kill Tyrion before she started choking him. Um, She made the comment that, well, I'm already this far, so she just kept on going, referring to choking the victim. Um, Shabiznes stated that she enjoyed choking him and made comments to detectives asking if they knew what it was like to have Uh, to love something so much that you can kill it, the complaint says. (sighs) You know, that seems uh, very, um, that sounds like a quote from Kafka that I just read yesterday. Coincidentally, the synchronicity of the universe. But um, Shabiznes stated she enjoyed choking him and made comments to detectives asking if they knew what it was like to love something so much that you can kill it. Folks, you ask me to define um, things oftentimes on this show, you know, legal terms. Um, Motives, intents, things like that. But that quote, which is not a direct quote from Taylor, by the way, But you can find her direct quote and um, her videotaped interrogation. But she's making a distinction between love and hate, the way that we react to such emotions, the things that it drives us to do, and how the two were not always logically connected. Have you ever loved something so much that you knew you can kill it? I personally do not know that attachment to that emotion. But clearly, there are those out there that do. And you find them in these cases where if I can't have her, then nobody can. Or um, if we can't have this perfect life, then nobody can have a life. And you get these murder-suicide cases. Um, There's nothing in what Taylor said about her friend that lent itself to any 
logical connection to what she did to him. He was her friend. She says that she loved him so much that she wanted to kill him. I'm not sure how to process that emotion or uh, that uh, description of that emotion or that attachment to that emotion, that specific action. Um, But it just further lends itself to as much as we think we know about what we would do in any given situation and what should be done in certain given situations, um, how complex the human brain really is, how complex human emotion and the fragility of the human state actually is, that sometimes our good intentions are so uh, skewed by, say what you will, tragedy, by tough upbringing, by chemical intoxication, uh, by mental illness, that the lines between good and evil are substantially blurred to the point where you get this case. So, um, she was arrested. They set a $2 million bail um, for him, and, you know, the the, the criminal case ensued. Um, Let me get back to uh, what I... uh, I lost my notes in the midst of everything. I apologize, everybody, but... Uh, Let me get back into uh, what I had. Um, So on July 26th, we had a whole trial. Um, Long story short, she was convicted um, of first degree intentional homicide, mutilating corpse, and third degree sexual assault, which is essentially uh, mutilating corpse. Um, On July 27th, uh, the very next day, just a couple of days ago, Uh, The jury was tasked with the job of deciding whether Taylor is not guilty by mental disease or defect. uh, And they, of course, rejected that. Uh, The plea of insanity was rejected uh, with the court finding her competent for trial. Therefore, um, they scheduled a sentencing hearing um, on September 26th of 2023 um, in the state of Wisconsin, um, we haven't been here in Wisconsin since uh, the Daryl Brooks trial. Um, I missed you guys. But um, September 26th, uh, she's uh, to be sentenced. In the state of Wisconsin, first-degree intentional homicide carries life sentence, of course, while mutilating corpse is a felony, a felony punishable by up to $25,000 fine, 12 years and six months in prison. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the uh, the murder charge is going to control that. They could run those concurrent or consecutive. He's she's going to be in there for the rest of her life. Um, it should be noted uh, that Taylor had has been receiving mental health treatment since uh, the seventh grade, and this is kind of the stuff that the defense attorneys uh, get to hear, and that they they kind of did try to um, present this at trial. But let's get into some of that a little bit. Um, We already talked about the murder, um, how the body was found. Um, so we had mentioned a little bit about uh, Shabiznis's background, that she was once convicted of 
fleeing or obstruction of justice uh, from the police. She was sentenced to three months in jail that she did a work release, which means she didn't do it in jail. She did like community service. Um, following the testimony from Tyrion's mom, authorities eventually, they, they located her um, via a GPS tracker from her ankle. So it wasn't really difficult to find her. Um, last year, um, a physician that was appointed by the court found that she was able to stand trial. Her attorney said at that time uh, that she business has been um, diagnosed as bipolar in the past and that she had been getting mental health treatment since she was in seventh grade. Seventh grade, that's, uh, that's roughly, uh, how old is that? That's about 12 years old. 12 years old. Um, and by the way, it's not, it's not all that uncommon to get mental health treatment, if that's what you want to call it. But um, children, especially that age, are in therapy all the time for, you know, regardless of whether or not they have mental illness. So it's not uh, fantastical to me to consider the fact that she's been treated for mental health since the seventh grade, that to me does not mean um, an actual uh, diagnosis, but you know that that is significant. And around twelve year old, twelve years old, mind you, that um, that's about the age she uh, of when her mother died from alcoholism. Um, the judge ruled in uh, March uh, that she was competent. That wasn't really the issue. Um, they had noted that in February uh, that she business had previously attacked her attorney, not the one that she has now, but a previous attorney during court uh, before a deputy was able to wrestle her to the floor. Um, Shabiznis's current attorney, he then filed a motion to exclude evidence of uh, searches that Shabiznis made before her murder, including uh, Jeffrey Dahmer walking into court all sexy was one of her searches. And uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's butt. Um, she was infatuated with Jeffrey Dahmer. There's another picture floating around her where she takes a selfie with a picture of Jeffrey Dahmer in the background. Um, that's kind of the first time I've ever heard that adjective associated with Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, but there you go. I guess you live long enough, huh? Uh, the judge did rule, however, that the evidence was going to be admitted, uh, but no mention should be made for her searches for Satanism. Um, that's really uh, the extent of really what's out there in terms of official information that's been out. But bipolar, I mean, it's it's a common it's it's a common term. It's somewhat overused. Everybody's bipolar, right? Or narcissistic, or you know, they got major depressive disorder. So it's hard to say uh, with any degree of certainty uh, what all that even means with respect to her ability to process information, form thoughts, her creativity. Um, her interactions with the world. But, you know, her defense attorney had to say something. That's what he said. As far as her ties and her searches to Satanism, um, whether or not to classify Satanism as a religion, you know, I kind of broached that specific topic. There are Satanists out there, particularly in the 60s and 70s when that religion was started. There was an actual book of Satanism that was very popular by this guy. Um, he was mostly full of it, um, but he started a cult following and tried to turn Satanism into a bona fide religion that would be protected 
uh, by, you know, the First Amendment, you know, right to uh, practice religion and have your own religious beliefs um, that was litigated in the Supreme Court, no less. And really where we stand on that is without getting too far off course is you could practice whatever religion that you want, but you cannot use religion as the basis to commit crimes, essentially. Um, and they drew the line at bizarre rituals that involved animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, obviously. Um, you know, you could have your religious rituals. You just can't hurt people as a result. It's kind of where it's, it's not as simple as that, but it's the long and the short of it. If, if, if you were curious, maybe I'll do a show on that if anybody's curious. But um, you have the right to practice Satanism as you want, if you want. And what it would be in practice to um, practice it legally, it would have to be essentially a philosophy, um, a theological following of some religious ideology that you attribute or subscribe to. Uh, but you're not allowed to murder people or... Um, harm people in that way. So in my experience, the people that I have confronted or encountered who are practitioners of Satanism all seem to have a common trait. And one of them is bipolarism. One of the uh, defining characteristics is uh, they all claim to not be competent to stand trial or not even declared so much by themselves, but just declared by more or less their conduct. Um, where uh, defense attorneys and judges have asked the question whether or not this person is nuts because, you know, there's, there's something off kilter here. And then we have psychologists come in and make their evaluations and put them on medications in some cases or in some cases say, no, they're perfectly fine. In some cases, you always get those cases where people are malingering symptoms to try to uh, bolster their claims that they're uh, not competent to stand trial to try to delay the inevitable. Inevitable. Um, but that is what that is. So Taylor's business. Um, the court case has brought some, clearly some disturbing details into uh, different aspects of, you know, not really her life. I mean, her life, nobody cared about her before she did these crimes. People are cared, they, they're, they're interested in her now because of what has happened whether or not that's right or wrong, I'm not to judge. I am, however, um, confronted with uh, the idea of, I, I'll tell you, I wanted to do this show yesterday, but uh, folks, I am, I am tired. I am tired. And, um, you know, my cases in real life, they, uh, they get heavy sometimes. And sometimes when I'm dealing with these cases in real life and, um, I'm researching these other cases that I'm not involved in. It's just uh, my mindset is not a good one for doing a case like this. And I want to bring you guys good content. I want to do my best to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm not shortchanging you guys that, that are so um, invested in the show. Um, but, you know, um, yesterday I, I, just, I just couldn't. I wanted to, I wanted to start the show. I had all this prepped, um, but, I, but I just couldn't. And it, a lot of it was just the, the emotional toll that my real life cases take on me. And then I'm, I'm doing some research and I'm seeing these other true crime YouTubers out there that are doing stuff and they're not involved in law enforcement. You know, they're doing this stuff for content. I'm not going to knock them, you know, obviously, cause I have a YouTube channel. It's not that, um, 
I'm saying that they're doing anything wrong, uh, but it's like um, Charles Dombrowski, uh, or not Dombrowski, Borowski, the famous writer, um, was not a good person in life, but he was one hell of a writer. And one of the things that he always said was that he, he gauges the effectiveness of a writer and really a communicator. You could extend that to communication. You could extend that into speech. You could extend that into YouTube comments um, or content, if you will. But the, the measure is in the weight of the words. And so often I was coming across the, this content that was basically saying, oh, um, I can't even imagine, and you know these conclu- these conclusory statements like the fact of that this mother would come across uh, this bucket with her son's head on it is completely heartbreaking, and just leave it at that, you know, without any context, without any weight, without any experience, without any empathy for the victims. It's like this feigned empathy for the victims that is it's it, it was in the moment it was sickening, and you know what? I like that YouTuber. I'm not going to name her. Um, because I, I like her and I like her show and I like her content, but the, and she might not even have been intentionally doing it, but it just got me into this mindset. It's like, what are we doing here? Like, what are we doing? Why do we do this? And, you know, I get into my moods and, um, it, it goes and you know, I have to, uh, I make sense in it this way that, and if, in I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not uh, stumbling over my words here, but basically justice. I talked about it. I talk about it as a prism. You look through the prism of justice and there are an infinite amount of angles and arrays that you can cling on to and they all lead. They all try to lead to a singular focus. This uh, definition of justice. Everybody has their own ideas. Everybody loves to judge people. Everybody loves to uh, jump on these bandwagons and, oh, wow, this person is so terrible. You know, I made comments about, um, we did the Maya Kowalski case a a few weeks back. I took a lot of heat um, because I was deemed by some individuals as not being uh, sympathetic enough uh, to Beata Kowalski, uh, a lady who I had largely championed her behavior and the fact that she was trying so hard to protect her children and she was, you know, um, beating down the doors of the hospital and CPS and fighting the good fight and doing all of these positive things. And then at the end of all of it, um, she ended up ending her life because a judge told her that she couldn't give her daughter a hug after she had requested it. The judge denies that request. And 24 hours later, she decided to end her life. And um, people did not like my reaction to that. And my reaction was one of, uh, well, I don't have an opinion about whether she made the right call on that or not. I only have the question of uh, how is her daughter doing? Because her daughter is still alive. Her daughter was the one going through this, uh, this, uh, this medical illness that she had. And now she's living with possibly the guilt of her being in this situation leading to the death of her mother. And she's going to have to find a way to reconcile that for the rest of her life. 
while all the while, all of this good work that she had done, that she had left in her wake, that was being, you know, fought by the attorneys, that was being fought by doctors that were on her side. Well, we didn't get to see that case out to her fruition. And then in the midst of all of that, um, there was a certain segment of the commenters on that video that I had done that suggested that um, Beata Kowalski uh, did this because she was being accused and she knew that if she was out of the way that her child would be able to come home. And I was looking all over for that narrative. It's like, when did she ever say that? Was there a suicide note? Did somebody uncover something that I missed? No. And so here's what happened with that. Here's what I suspect happened with that. In the course of us trying to make sense of all of this and finding some, com some common thread, some common uh, justice for Maya Kowalski, for Beata Kowalski, a narrative was invented that sought to make Beata Kowalski a martyr. That didn't come from anywhere other than our common consciousness. It was the only way we could make sense and turn, try to turn this into a positive thing. I'm not going to make those kinds of judgments. I'm not going to make those kinds of evaluations. I'm not going to judge Beata Kowalski's actions. And the only reason I even bring this up is because, you know, these cases, why are we here? Why are we listening to these salacious cases? We're trying to understand and find common ground, honestly, of humanity. We're so divided on so many different levels. And people say that, you know, oh, we should just tell it like it is. But how it is, is not always so clear. How it is to me is not how it is to you. Um, I am a lawyer. <laughs> Breaking news, right? But there's a lot of lawyers on YouTube. And I, I watch some of their content to try to get inspiration from the show. And I can tell you what, for the Tilted Lawyer podcast, I've been going for about a year. I've decided what it is that I'm going to be. What I am not going to be is a stick-up-the-ass lawyer that comes up here and reads criminal complaints and gives you the ABCs of the law. Yeah, I could do that. Sure, I'd do that. I do do that. But I'm not going to, you know, for me to be able to work in this profession, to not overly saturate my soul with guilt, with grief, with empathy for my clients, with victims in these, in these horrific cases, I have to find a connection to humanity, which is really stating that I'm trying to find a connection to justice somewhere, somehow. And um, the way that I do it is on this show, I don't give legal advice. I'm not here to teach you guys about the law, but you are going to learn a whole lot about the law on this show. What I'm really trying to do is find a connection to you all because I am on the front lines of these cases. I fight these cases. I fight CPS directly. I'm the guy that represents people like Beata Kowalski and tries to reunite her with her children. I'm on the front lines fighting Lawyers that are trying to keep her down, trying to fight CPS, trying to defend criminals that may or may not be guilty. I fight these cases. I try to keep children safe. I try to do all of these things. And I have to make certain evaluations about whether or not my clients are telling me the truth or whether they're not. Sometimes the, the lines are blurred. Sometimes it's obvious, such as in this case. Uh, but, you know, more often than not, when I walk into the courtroom, half the courtroom thinks that I am the personification of evil. And that's just how it is. You know how I know that? I mean, because I've been a lawyer for a long time. But if you just read some of the comments in that Kowalski video, there's people that are saying that um, I'm this vile person because um, I did not fall down and worship on my knees and praise Beata Kowalski as a martyr. Um, you know, even though I did a whole 90 minutes um, 
basically deconstructing CPS and talking about the perils and CPS of that particular agency and all of the damage that it could do um, from my perspective as an attorney. But, uh, you know, um, that is from my perspective, from my particular array out of the prism of justice. And not to get too preachy with you guys, I apologize for doing that. But um, if you're listening to my show, if you've been following me and there is a growing number of you, and to me, you guys are family. Um, oftentimes the show is really my therapy for, I feel always a, a million times better um, about my career and about what I'm doing and just in general in life, just because I get to do this show. I'm very thankful for what it's become. I'm very thankful for what it's becoming. <clears throat> I've met, uh, I've made a lot of friends of a, a lot of you. I know all of the regulars and we're starting to get more and more people and it's, it's an exciting thing to do. Um, however you consume the show, just know that you are family to me, whether or not you choose to uh, look at my ugly mug on YouTube or you just want to listen to my voice um, on the podcast. You guys are family to me. Um, and I'm always going to try to find a connection to all of you. The human connection is really what I'm mostly concerned with. The law takes care of itself. The law is really not all that difficult. The only difference between me and you is that I spent, you know, probably over 20 years of my life trying to learn what the law is and what it isn't, and how to define it academically. What I'm trying to do now as an attorney, you know, um, 10 years into this practice is uh, trying my best, trying my damnedest uh, to connect the legal profession uh, to that small gray area of human empathy that allows regular folks to connect with lawyers in a way that is not so destructive so that we're looking at lawyers, not so much, though there are evil lawyers out there, believe it or not, but we're not all like that, you know? Most of us are sincerely only after justice. We, through our many cases, have a view of what that is, and our clients tell me what their version is, and our opposing counsels and the opposing parties tell me what their version is, and we try and work diligently to figure out um, what those things are. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, before I go too far off on a tangent, I've been going for uh, quite some time on this show. It's been a, I try to keep the show down to an hour. Um, I'm about 20 minutes over that now. Uh, so I, I think it's time to end. Um, but this has been, um, uh, hey, family court is like shaking the diet. Um, you guys were commenting at me. I apologize. I didn't see. Uh, family court is like shaking the dice. Sometimes, no matter what is presented, the judge rules. You know, that is uh, 100% true. And, you know, that's another show for another day. But um, one of the things in our engagement letters as family law attorneys, we have to understand that, look, sometimes the law that makes the, the way that we interpret the law that makes sense to us is not the way that it's going to make sense to the judge. And the, 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 the worst part about family law is that we don't get the benefit of jury trials. We have to do these bench trials, which is one guy's opinion or one female's opinion about their interpretation of law. And that's the one person we get to, con to convince as opposed to, say, a panel of 12 jurors, which um, is probably how it should be. But I don't think it's very realistic just given the amounts of uh, resources that that would take up. It's just not realistic. Um, but in a perfect world, a family court would be. Um, held uh, with jury trials. It's just not, at least not in the state of California or any other jurisdiction that I'm familiar with. But 
All right, folks, it's been, uh, it's, uh, it's been one hell of a morning. It's about 92 degrees in my office because the air conditioner isn't working um, because I'm here on a Saturday morning and they don't turn it on here on the weekends, but that's okay. Um, for all of you out there, make sure that you keep your loved ones safe. Uh, tell everybody I love you. Give them a hug. Uh, go out and do something. Go make memories. Um, <clears throat> make sure you keep your doors locked. Make sure you know who your loved ones are associated with as best you can. You just never know what's going to happen in this crazy world. And you know what else? Um, say no to drugs. <laughs> I've said that's the 80s. But um, if there's one takeaway from this case, do not mix marijuana with methamphetamine and antidepressants. Jesus Christ, what was that about? Um, who's this? Janice Bailey. Welcome. It's her first time here. She says, a master's and a CJ research. Just a few minutes of listening. You have a great heart and want justice. As we know, the law is not the same as Moore's. Oh, that's, that, that is for sure. The law is very oftentimes the antithesis of morals. The very antithesis of a common sense. Um, and we try to make sense of it. And it's what's so maddening about this profession. Not even maybe about a month ago, um, I did a show with Eliana. By the way, she's about to pop any day now. That's why she hasn't been on. Um, I hope to have her back in, you know, the next couple of months. She, but she's uh, she's off. She's on maternity leave or going to be on maternity leave and doing all those things. But <laughs> we were going about the um, talking about one of her cases. And then at some point during the show, I was like, do we really... We still want to be lawyers or what, man? Because it's kind of, this case sucks. I think we were talking about, um, ah, I can't think of it. Um, yeah, oftentimes we have those thoughts. Beeble Knievel, how are you? Uh, she watched that doc last night, and I'm sure her husband implied that she did it uh, for that reason. But others uh, than that, she was kind. Like, uh, where did that come from? Um, husband implied that she, yeah, well... Yeah, it's it's hard to make heads or tails of uh, the husband in that case. I, I know you're talking about the Kowalski case. Um, they had their issues. You know, I spoke positively on the, on that episode about the husband, and people thought that I was taking his side or whatever. I was not taking sides. It's just uh, the reality of it was that they were in an impossible situation, and um, husband was um, trying to maneuver as best he can. He was laser-focused on doing whatever the courts wanted him to do to get his daughter back. Um Beata was uh, taking another approach and um, she was, you know, trying to do everything she could forcefully to impose her will on the system. And, um, you know, they were, they were just not united. They were not aligned in those regards. And one method is not better than the other. But I could tell you that if I was Beata's attorney, I would have been telling her the same things that our actual attorney was telling her that, look, we have to do these things. We have to say quiet we have to make sure that we don't give them any excuse whatsoever to speak negatively. If they want to say that you're being a pain in the ass, I don't care if they say that. They can say that all day, but you can't violate these specific orders or it's going to delay things. She's probably having those conversations. But oftentimes when we have those conversations with clients, they perceive it a different way. They perceive it as uh, if we're taking this side of the government and we're not. We're trying to win your case. <sighs> I can't tell you how many times I've sat with mothers or fathers or the parents of uh, defendants and, you know, as they were crying and trying to explain why things are the way they are. And it just doesn't always, uh, it just doesn't always connect. Um, thank you, uh, Beeble Knievel. I, 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 I know you've been with this pretty much 
don't know from the very, very beginning, but pretty much from the beginning. And I always appreciate you showing up and, and saying hello. Um, all right, guys, I got to wrap this up. Um, I want you guys to have the most wonderful of weekends. And uh, we will see you guys all uh, next week. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.